Did I say welcome back? What a fucking idiot. Never mind. <laughs> Start again. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Double Reel, the podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's March 2022, and just in case you were bored now the pandemic is winding down, we have a war in mainland Europe to worry about instead. We're here here to get you through it all with a generous helping of cinematic content. My name's James Adamson, and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, Good to be here. Not good to be in another war or on the fringes of one, but yeah, let's talk about films. Films, not war. Films Not War is one of our many slogans that uh, typify who we are. Even though one of our films is about war, but yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I, I realise now. Wait. <laughs> we aim to provide an old school film goer's experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy on the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at Double Real Film. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash Double Real, where we list all the films we've discussed on the podcast and much more besides. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Here's what's coming up in episode 23. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, how we're doing in our film-related resolutions for 2022, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month we're looking at 1917, the highly acclaimed First World War epic from Sam Mendes. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here. Then we turn to The One That Got Away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 23, we're tying in with DC's latest reboot of The Cape Crusader with a look back at Darren Aronofsky's Batman Year One. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month looks at the 2012 remake of 80s Cold War thriller Red Dawn. After the intermission, the second of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 23, we compare and contrast action films from the 1980s against their counterparts from the 2000s and 2010s. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the podcast magazine letters page. Seventh Reel Pod on Instagram uh, got in touch regarding the Nick Cage film Pig that we did last episode, uh, saying it's the best Springsteen needle drop in film. It's a big call, that. It's great, but I think my favourite is Stolen Car in Copland. Anyway, shout out to the Seventh Reel podcast. They boast seven reels to our mere two. Sasha on Facebook also says, I read that because of budget restrictions, they couldn't get a properly trained pig for the film. The pig they used had a total of three days training and was very badly behaved, biting Nick Cage several times during filming. Yes, good. (laughs) Fantastic. On our classic for this month, Path of Glory, Travis says it's one of the best war films of all time. Wade (laughs) says it pairs well with The Thin Red Line, which I wasn't all that keen on, but I see where you're coming from in terms of how it comments on the war and its leaders. Uh, Brendan says for a long time it was clearly the best World War I film of all time. Now with 1917, it's perhaps up for debate. Uh, Well, we'll maybe get into that on the pod. 
On our remake, Hate Watch Red Dawn, Jacob says, oh my God, I completely forgot they changed the enemy to North Korea. What a shit show. Kevin <laughs> says the remake sucked. The, the original is still an absolute classic. I think Kevin might be American. We, we had a few comments on the topic of our big conversation, but we're saving them for real too. We'll throw them in while we're actually talking about that subject. Uh, on our hidden gem for this month, you were never really here. Joe says, it didn't get anywhere near the credit it deserved when it was released. And Stephanie says, I love it. I've rewatched it several times and it gets better with each viewing. On our classic 1917, Ricky says, great film, very immersive. I also loved Midway, which came out the same year and had a similar effect, putting the viewer in the cockpit with pilots dogfighting with Japanese zeros. Haven't seen it, but that sounds interesting. On our one that got away, Darren Aronofsky's Batman Year One, we got a fair bit of listener traffic. Brendan says, thank God this didn't happen. Bullet dodged. Shane says, there seem to be a number of Batman films or ideas going around at the same time as this. Christian Bale was being looked at for a film based on the frightening comic series with the Scarecrow as the villain. It's interesting that in the end, he was the Batman for Nolan's films, and the first film used elements of Year One and had Scarecrow as one of the villains. Cameron says, Aronofsky made The Wrestler, which is simultaneously one of the most depressing films I've ever seen, one of the best I've ever seen. No idea what he would have ended up doing with Batman. And we'll be discussing new release The Batman in the roundup, and Solfin got in touch to say, I think it was too long. It had three ending scenes, at least one of which they could have cut out. There were other scenes during the film they could have cut as well, but mentioning them would include spot plot spoilers. Thanks for all the messages, including the ones we didn't have time to read out. Now on with the podcast. Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of each year we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set ourselves this year. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see so that we all have a better cinematic experience. Just a bit of self-promotion before we get into it. Uh, our other podcast, The Adamson's Verses, has a new episode out, uh, dropped about a week ago, uh, at time of recording anyway, called The Adamson's Versus Deliveroo. All our other episodes are also available to listen, so check those out. Okay, that uh, that piece of self-promotion over. Um, on to the news. Uh, what news has caught your eye lately, James? Um, before we start it with them, um, probably last night, I don't think we were expecting anything like this, but William Hurt passed away. Yes, he did. Yeah, he was seventy-one, which it, nowadays is the sort of age where you, you you don't say, "Oh, well, he had a good innings." You say, "Oh, did he? Was he ill?" Or what's going a short on? kind of illness because he was in yeah. he was in Black Widow. He was still making films, so yeah, that's always very sad. Um, and you know, condolences and thoughts out. To, condolences is the wrong word there, but you know what I mean. Like thoughts to his family. Um, he was an Oscar winner for what Kiss, was that film? Kiss of the Spider Woman, nineteen eighty five. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, I always enjoyed the films he was in. I suppose to a, a more modern audience, he's played that kind of minor role of Thaddeus Ross in yep. the Marvel films. But no, he was a very talented actor, and it's um, you know a shame when someone dies at, at seventy one. Now, like you said, it's not that kind of oh, he had a good innings. So yeah, yeah, he, he's left behind some phenomenal performances. He really was a very, very good actor. Um, it seems churlish. It's not the sort of thing you like to mention in people's obituaries, but there, there were some allegations of sexual misconduct which were never addressed. But I, I you know, it, it, I wouldn't like to skate over um, that and, and dismiss, you know, people who've, who've been through that. But I think it's one of those things where, at a time yeah. like this, you sort of have to say, "Well, I have a great appreciation for what their, what their, you know, what their work achieved as a as, as an actor or a filmmaker." And 
yeah. kind of have to acknowledge the other side of things as well. No, um, neither neither the death or those allegations are cool. Anybody yeah. that does things, then yeah. he was alive. He should have been held accountable for them. But yeah. at the end of the day, he's he's a man with a family, so yeah, it's yeah, it's sad for them in both circumstances of the misconduct and his death. So uh, agree, agree. Um, yeah. So a, a piece of news which is probably uh, means more to me, sort of on a personal level. It's not so much a massive kind of film event, event itself, but the Kermode Mayo Film Show and Radio Five is coming to an end. Um, oh, they right. announced that on Friday, which obviously was very upsetting uh, as an immediate response. But they have said in a sort of cryptic way uh, that it's not necessarily the end of the show, that they may well pop up somewhere else, uh, either a on podcast, a podcast, you imagine? Uh, they they might just put it out just as a podcast. There are other radio stations where both of them appear, so it might pop up there. Okay. Um, there's always a quote on there that Mark Kermode likes to make, which is say, everything will be all right in the end, and if it's not all right, it's not the end. Uh, and they did sort of hint very heavily that this might not, you know, this isn't, you know, the end of their ambitions yeah, to keep doing I think that. Sure. They'll find another way, whether it's in a format like this or yeah. in another medium, they'll find it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I've, you know, the fact that that, that, that was the film podcast I've, I've, I've listened to the most, you know, they release it as a podcast after the show's been over. And, you know, I'm, I'm fairly certain that I wouldn't be doing a podcast if, if that podcast, you know, wasn't, you know, there to kind of inspire me. So, um, yeah, it's sort of hopefully it's just goodbye for now. Um, next bit of news was the BAFTAs. That was last night as well, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was unsurprising um, that The Power of the Dog did really well. Although the Dune picked up a lot of awards, which I was pleased to see. And Zimmer. Is, oh, yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. And he, happening? He's also, I mean, he's also currently the favourite with the bookies to pick up uh, an Oscar. Um which is one piece of good news. I mean, the re- I mean, I, I'm really not that impressed by Power of the Dog. I'm not hugely impressed by the co- sort of clean sweep that it's getting. But look, these things happen at the Oscars from time to time. There are films, you know, in the past that, you know, you, you look back and go, really, they really loved that that much. You know, you know, you can go back to our big conversation about the Oscars where we went into that in some detail. There's always been a film here and there that, you know. At the time, you wonder what the fuss... Well, at the time, it wins everything, but years later, you wonder what the fuss was all about. I think that's going to be the case with that one. There are a few interesting things out there. The um, Ariana DeBose uh, looks like she's absolutely nailed on for supporting actress of the Oscars, and she won the BAFTA last night. Um, what, she and A.M.? Uh, West Side Story. She plays oh, the famous role, the role, Story, the role made famous by Rita Moreno in the, uh, in the original. Um, I fully but- cannot be fucked with that. It, look, if it's not your thing, it's not your thing, and I'm, I can't. I mean, I know, I've never watched the original. I'm sure it's great. I mean, it's a Sondheim musical, and he's he was one of the best musical people apparently there ever was. It's not really my genre, and you one of the, one of these days it will be on telly or, or somewhere, and I'll I'll accidentally see some of it and find out if I like it or not. And if I like it, I'll watch it, and it'll become one of those short list of musicals I really like. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it looks like Will Smith's nailed on for the best actor as well for King Richard. I'm actually yeah. quite excited because um, I think we've 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 dissected the awards award shows um, enough. So I think we should I think we should leave it there because obviously next month our kind of big conversation thing is going to basically be yeah what we thought of the Oscar nominees. We're going to tr- watch as many as we can. Obviously, there's about fifty yeah. films that get yeah. Nominated. I mean, look, we'll watch, all we watch can, the yeah. we'll watch the big ones, the big games. We'll do the we'll um, do the best we can on that. Yeah, we'll, the only, the we'll only, do the FA Cup and all that. Stuff, that's right. The, the, <laughs> the only one I want to mention now is because I, I think it's very unlikely to get any recognition that uh, uh, the Oscar she's not even nominated is Joanna Scanlon uh, won BAFTA for Best Actress. Uh, for her role in After Love, which is a British film that I don't think the Americans have seen very much of. She's a terrific actress. She's done a lot of 
excellent stuff on TV. And uh, it was quite nice to see her win, you know, when, you know, sometimes the BAFTAs and all these other ones, they do tend to kind of track the big award shows and want to kind of, um, I think sometimes they want to beat their, they want their reward to be on the poster or the video case more than that, you know, more than they want to reward the best performance. So if they think yeah. Joanna Scanlon was the best actress uh, and she's got a BAFTA now, which is tremendous. Uh, also, um, Troy Coatser won Best Supporting Actor for CODA. Yes, and everyone was sort of expecting Cody Smith-McPhee to kind of walk away, which he probably will at the Oscars, but yeah, that was interesting. Um, but yeah, it's good that... Is, is he the first deaf man to win a BAFTA? And I don't, I can't really name many deaf actors in general, let alone that have won, you know, prestigious awards. So the, the only one I can name, him. the only one can I, I can name is Marley Matlin, who, interestingly, is one of the people who made an accusation against uh, William Hurt, but she won an Oscar for Children of a Lesser God. Oh, where well, she played, I stand corrected. She's a deaf actress. Oh, no, it's, it's very much an outlier, and it's not a film that gets watched oh. a lot on, on TV now. I mean, if you if you weren't around when it, when it was on, you wouldn't know it now. She went on to do a bunch of things. She was in... Um, uh, the West Wing. She, she's she's quite you know she's quite keen to ensure that she you know plays deaf characters and and you know gives good you know gives a good account of herself on that score. But yeah, it's very very rare. And I think apart from her, yes, he is the uh, he is the first. It's good to see that kind of representation. Last night, um, my partner and I we were at a comedy gig. Um, she'd bought like t- uh, tickets for her pals as like a Christmas present. I got a ticket as well, so we went to see yeah. Larry Dean. Yeah. He was a Scotchman, and he's very funny, and he had a support act, and they both had um, interpreters on stage, and um, they were trying, to, and it was very funny because it was very crude humor, and like these, <laughs> these sign language lasses were having to like you know, mime all of these things, and it, it's a shame for the support act because we didn't find him that funny, and his his it says a lot when the sign language interpreter is funnier than the actual act with what she's <laughs> doing on the stage because they they were playing up to it. Um, yeah. Um, but it was really good. It was really good to see that representation. And at the at the end, uh, Larry Dean said, at the end of the show, I'll be at the stage door um, because they can't meet inside and during COVID, whereas they can meet outside and have a wee chat. And his mm. interpreter was there, um, you know, for any deaf people that wanted to have yeah. a... Yeah, that's really good. So that's, that's really good. So kind of just echoing what I was saying, that it's good for that kind of representation to keep being... And it, it, and it, sh- it shows that films can, can help with that. I mean, you can sometimes get a bit smug and pretentious, or the, the industry can get a bit smug and pretentious about how much good it does. I remember Whoopi Goldberg wanting to give Hollywood a massive pat on the back for fixing homophobia because Brokeback Mountain won some Oscars. <laughs> I just think, come on, guys, Brokeback Mountain was you know was a great film and I'm glad it happened but Hollywood hadn't exactly been like fighting on the barricades for gay people prior to that but it, it is when you see the sound of metal come out and these other things come out you actually you know it, it, it just goes to show that if you if you sh- if you do stuff like that people are ready to you know ready to uh to pay attention which is good yeah the Oscars are coming up there you know there, there are a number of um bookies odds I think while we're going to you know to dissect it next next month I just wanted to very men- quickly mention Interesting that Nicole Kidman is now the bookie's favourite to win Best Actress. Right? Did she win Best Actress for? No, she didn't because Joanna Scanlon yeah, yeah. won the Globe. Um, I think she did win. Yeah, she did win the Globe. I don't mind Nicole Kidman, but she's a bit boring, isn't she? She's. I mean, I've talked about how I feel about Nicole Kidman before. I can't say I don't think she's a good actress. I think she is a good actress. She's very effective in a number of roles. It's just when you. If she wins, if she's a double Oscar winner, how many actresses in history are double Oscar winners? And you look at that list of Oscar winners and, and put Nicole Kidman next to them. It's like if you look at the top five footballers of all time, and then someone else rocks up and they've won World Footballer of the Year twice, and you go, really them? 
Do you know what I mean? Some kind of decent Premier League player is suddenly mentioned in the same breath as like Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi and Pele. It's like, really? Um, so it, it it feels harsh to slag her off too much because I, I just think she's good, but not as good as the amount of awards she's won would, would attest, which is a little a tiny, tiny little hobby horse of mine. Yeah. There's only one sort of a quirky bit of news that I thought I wanted to mention before we get into the rest of it is that uh, I went and treated myself to a 4K Blu-ray player. Oh. So is I, it as loud as my fucking Xbox? It sounds like it's about to take off. No, no. It's, uh, I'm, I'm sorry they haven't come up with a fix for that yet so that you can enjoy Interstellar the way it was intended. But um, I, yeah, it's, uh, it's, just, it's just a normal one. So it, it doesn't have the kind of firmware or whatever it is problem that your, um, your console has. Uh, as a result, I started having a little dig through my collection to go, oh, what have I got that's like an old DVD that might be worth, a, you know, going on the... You know, the next time I get an Amazon voucher, shall I? Shall, will that be what I buy on 4K to replace my, you know, scruffy old DVD copy? And because I'm that kind of person, because I'm on a little spectrum of my own, um, it, it resulted in me doing a spreadsheet of all of my de- of all of my my film collection. Because I I just I, I need a proper list. I need to like keep track of everything. So this created some statistics that I I wanted to share because this is how sad I am. How many how many discs or films you know do, do do you think I do you think I own? Oh, I don't know, man. You've got a lot. When I was down last August, is, are all of your Blu-rays in that room? All, all all my all the physical copies I own are on that on that on that shelf in that and and I own a few things that I've bought you know on kind of digital like Amazon and stuff as well. But so. that's not we're not including them. No, no I'm I'm including them. Oh, you are including that. Yeah. Well, fuck off. Um, physically, the ones on the shelf. I want to say oh, that was a long. Show. I want to say about two hundred. So it's five hundred and fifty-three on that shelf. It's no, it's four hundred and ninety on the shelf. I've got about six <laughs> films. I've got four hundred and ninety films on there. Um, more more than fifty percent of the of the films I own are old uh, DVDs, as opposed to Blu-rays and high definition. Uh, just over fifty percent. Uh, how many of my film collection? Do you think I've not watched yet? None of them. 48. There's 48 things on my shelf I've not got around to watching yet. Jesus. Fuck. And which director do you think I own the most films by? Oh, fuck. Because, oh. I mean, you love a bit of John Carpenter and you love a bit of Kubrick, but Kubrick didn't make that many films. Who's made a lot of films? Is it Ridley Scott? It is Ridley Scott. Yeah. it's even it's even Ridley Scott if I only count all the Blade Runner versions of Blade Runner I have as one film, it's still marginally Ridley Scott. If it wasn't that, it would be Hitchcock because someone once got me a, a box set of all of loads of Hitchcock's films, which makes him the second biggest. But yeah, it is Ridley Scott. I just thought it kind of this is a podcast about being a film nerd, and that's you know that's a very film nerd thing to do. So I now, I now have a spreadsheet of all of the films that have different categories, and kind of I can search and kind of you know filter, and that's just uh, that's me and my little kind of nerd nerd track there. Uh, well, I most of my stuff is digital, but I don't think I've got that many. Yeah, I know it's just a case of, I think there comes a time, I think now, I mean, I have noticed the reason I own an increasing number of films digitally is that I've, I've you know, I go looking for the Blu-ray of things to buy and the Blu-ray is 10 to 12 quid minimum and the digital copy is six quid. And you just think, you know, unless I really, really, really want a proper copy on disc that's got fully rich, you know, features and everything, I'll buy the digital copy. So... And, you know, there's a lot of people I know, you know, you, you don't, you know, you, you, you've, if you're still renting, for example, you haven't got a huge amount of space, you know, a, you know, a lot of people just aren't buying discs as much as they used to, are they? 
Yeah, it's moving forward. But the annoying thing is that the prices for the digital copies are a bit more expensive. So hopefully that balances out in the future. Hopefully that's yeah. the next bit of news we can talk about. Soon. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> so let, let's talk about the films that are out now. That's that's the next thing we always go to. Um, the uh, chip in. I've I've picked out some ones that uh, that, that you know, I thought were interesting or notable. Chip in with any that kind of capture your eye, James. Uh, on the 25th of March, which is the day our podcast is released, so you know we always record a little bit ahead of time, so we try and mention everything that's coming out from the, the date of publication going forward. Um, there's a film called The Worst Person in the World. It's a Norwegian romantic drama. That was actually nominated for a couple of BAFTAs last night. It's apparently very good. Uh, Benedetta is a new film from Paul Verhoeven of Total Recall and Robocop fame. And also a few more controversial films than that, like Showgirls. Uh, he's always controversial, and I think this film is no exception. Uh, partly because it's him and he's a bit mental, but also because um, the book uh, that this film is based on is called Immodest Acts, The Life of a Lesbian Nun in Renaissance Italy. So uh, that is, I imagine that's going to make some news when it comes out. Yeah. Um, another one. Another awesome. one, another one coming out uh, before the end of the month is Ambulance. It's a new film directed by Michael Bay about oh, fuck that. about a heist gone wrong and the robbers hijack an ambulance to try and escape. The interesting thing about this is that that's a relatively t- potentially quite lean and tight subject for a, a director who's like Michael Bay, whose films are usually massively bloated. So I've honestly no idea what that's going to be like, apart from the fact that there's bound to be lots of explosions. <sighs> yeah, fuck no, no. Uh, and no. Uma, a horror film starring Sandra O, oh, is coming out in the March. Uh, I'll leave you to watch that. I'm not a big horror. Yeah. yeah. Anything else ca- caught your eye? It's coming up. No, nothing that's coming out. There's a couple of things out in April. I think the Nicolas Cage thing. Yeah, I, I did want. I did want to get to that. So let's just let's just skate over a couple of quick ones. Morbius, Jared Leto's Marvel vampire film is coming out. Not Again, stri- fuck that. Not very bothered. Uh, Sonic the Hedgehog two is coming out. <laughs> Whatever, man. Apparently the first one was a lot better than anyone expected, but it's a Sonic the Hedgehog film. Who cares? Um, there's another Fantastic Beasts film. This will be the third one, I think. Uh, Maz Mikkelsen has replaced Johnny Depp as Grindelwald. That's all I know about that one. Um, there's another one called The Outfit, uh, which is a bit of a play on words because uh, Mike Rylance plays a, uh, a tailor, as in a you know a maker of, a maker of bespoke clothing, who somehow gets embroiled with the mafia and has to try and outwit them over the course of one night. Uh, that's obviously a bit of a play on words because the outfit is a uh, is one of the, the euphemisms that used to be refer that used to used to refer to the mafia. Um, before we get to the cage one, just quickly jump through a couple of things. There's a film called The Lost City, which looks like a shit copy of Romancing Romancing the Stone. It does have quite a big name cast though: Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum, Brad Pitt, and Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, the Northman is coming out. It's uh, a Viking epic starring Alexander Skarsgård. Um, the director has um, mostly before this been associated with like dark horror inflected indie stuff like The Lighthouse and The Witch. Um, Father Stew is coming out, which sounds absolutely excruciating. It sounds like Mark Wahlberg's big push for an Oscar since it features him playing a real-life character, a boxer-turned-priest who suffers from a rare disease and is trying to do good in his local community. Um, so that's got um, uh, pretty much everything that uh, could either be very good or absolutely terrible Oscar bait. Yeah, Operation Mincemeat is coming out, which is the second film they've made. We mentioned it in passing a couple of episodes ago. Uh, it's about the true story of World War Two, in which they took a dead body um, and made it look like it had like fallen in the sea with the plans for the Normandy invasion on them, 
uh, but gave the, the Germans incorrect information which helped win the war. Um, and another one called Anoda, 10,000 Nights in the Jungle, which is a Japanese film about a soldier at the end of World War II. Japan has surrendered, but he decides to disappear into the Philippine jungle and continue fighting on his own for many years, um, which is uh, sounds curious. Uh, I'm, I'm interested if that will turn out like. Which brings us to the, the one I think we both want to talk about the most, which is April 22nd, starring Nicolas Cage, a film called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. <laughs> Um, I'm. I think we're going to have to. I mean, we can't do it till the May episode because of the way filming times uh, normally come out. But I think we're going to have to do this, aren't we? Yeah. Nicholas Cage plays Nicholas Cage, and it's got Pedro. Is it Pedro Pascal? And somebody That's else right. In it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Just to give people the synopsis to get an idea of what we're talking about, Nick Cage plays a sort of fictionalized version of himself uh a sort of a, a fictionalized stage in his career where he's uh creatively uh, stymied and in need of uh finances uh, in the story of this film he accepts a big fee to make a personal appearance at a dodgy billionaire's birthday party a dodgy billionaire's birthday party i should say using words properly uh but in fact he's actually acting as an fbi informant because they want to arrest the billionaire Nick Cage's character in the film is also hoping that the whole scheme will help him get cast in the next Quentin Tarantino film. I mean, this yes. could this could land anywhere on a wide spectrum between utterly brilliant and utterly shit, but I don't think you can possibly ignore it, can you? No. It, uh, it's 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 a fast. It's just got. It's got to be seen, hasn't it? Yeah, I don't. I don't want it to do that thing though, where we get so excited about it and then it's shit. Yeah, yeah, I think we should just say to everyone, this film is coming out, and we're going to watch it. That's that, right. At, yeah, because if we do that, because this is what you did with Pulp Fiction, and I don't like Pulp Fiction because yeah, Pulp it Fiction got, it got built up too much. You did it from about the age that I was about ten. You was like, when you're old enough, James, watch Pulp Fiction. I was like, right, okay, and then I watched it. and I was like, eh. so it's we're going to watch it. Yeah, and fingers crossed, it is as amazing as this. Yeah. Yeah. concept seems to be so we'll watch it when it comes out i think the the episode in which we will uh discuss it will be our may episode that's be episode 25 i think um and let's just leave it at that it's a fascinating idea we'll see what's actually happened to it yes Good. so other than that it's about what we actually watched in the cinema this month and i think we've both watched the batman uh yeah it's the first time i've been to the cinema since Spider-Man No Way Home. That's right, you've had a busy with, time of it. Yeah, but just with decorating and all that stuff, so like, oh, fuck it, do you want to go to the cinema? We've not been for ages. Went and see it, and I loved it. I thought it was really good. Um, I did agree with the critique of it being too long. That would be my one of my one of my two critiques of it. The other one would be that it's, it's another one of those films that you can barely fucking see. They have, yeah, they have taken the phrase make Batman darker and really very literally, haven't they? I just miss the days when you could watch a film and you could have had like a little bit of light in it. I get they're trying to make Gotham seem like a pure minging shithole, but... Uh, this is the what? thing, it's like the uh, Batman's meant to be dark and I think the reason it is as dark as that is that the, the, the director has quite rightly realised he's got to bring his own vision on, the, on Batman, otherwise it'll be, you know... It'll either be Nolan or not as good, or you know the, the Zack Snyder or not as bad, or you know what are we doing this for? We've done this before, do you know what I mean? And I think he rightly, I think he rightly chose a specific vision that plays back to some specific you know Batman stories that are that dark, 
but but I'm with you. I think it, I, I was fine with it for one film, but I assume they're going to do another one with Matt Reeves and, and Robert Pattinson. Uh, and maybe even Zoe Kravitz as well, because she's done quite well out of this film. And I would hope that they have just a few more daytime scenes in the next one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean, it was... Uh, my Mrs. Heath said it was too long. You needed to cut all these scenes. But see, when you actually analyse the scenes that you had, I actually... I'm not sure what, personally what I would have cut out. I mean, I get I get what the person is saying. The three yeah. endings, maybe. I understand that point. But my Mrs. was like, the first hour. Like, why was that there? And I was like, because it's, it's like... Going, it was a detective film. It wasn't like a Batman film where it was like. Well, that's that's what's that's a very interesting because Batman was originally like this this the superhero detective. I mean, DC stands for Detective Comics, and I thought it was very interesting they they went back as as, as completely as they did to his detective roots because he really was like it was odd to see him in his bat costume walking around crime scenes, but he was investigating crimes, wasn't he? He was he was he was being a detective. Yeah, well, that that's what I enjoyed about it because no, like I don't want to give a spoiler, but there's a bit at the end of the film that if it had been a Zack Snyder Batman film it, or any other kind of like superhero or DC film, Batman would have like tried to save Gotham from what's happening, mm-hmm. and that's not what happens. It's all about figuring out who's doing this, why they're doing it, and how they can stop that person as opposed to like this kind of catastrophic thing that's happening to the entire city that cannot be stopped but in any other film they would have come up with some sort of gadget to or like yeah far-fetched way to kind of stop it whereas it was very much a case of he's just a detective he's not got like these visions of mm. the end of the world and things like that it was just a case of he is a man who's trying to stop as much as he can stop yeah i mean i think it's i, th- I think what this film scores well is that it understood that you can't be Nolan because no, a Nolan's already happened, and you, it takes a hell of a director to be to be as good as him at, at, at that type of thing that he does. But Matt Reeves clearly understood very well that there needs to be something. There needs to be a, an underlying theme to to what you're watching from Batman. And this one was he was wrestling, wasn't he? He was wrestling with his father's legacy, and he was wrestling with whether he's actually making a difference. And how how that plays out, and how it how the story resolves itself does address that question that Batman slash Bruce Wayne has about whether he's making a difference but it does it in a slightly different way doesn't it like you I don't want to give away any spoilers but I think the way the way the question of is Bruce Wayne or Batman making a difference of what they're trying to do I think it plays out in a in a good way and 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 not in quite the same way we've seen before in these films and I thought that was I thought that was pretty good yeah it was it was just well done. There's some really good performances in there, especially. Um, I did enjoy Robert Pattinson. I did like. Um, I liked everyone. I liked like all the like main characters in the story. I thought they were all. Oh, they were all very really good. good. Yeah, I, I thought mean, Matt Reeves did a great job of getting the best out of those characters. Yeah, I mean, like like you, I I was watching the film and I was going right. It's been quite a lot of build up now, and if if we've had we've had story, we've had action, we've had stuff happening, and yet. This film needs to kick on now if people aren't going to start complaining about the length. And just as I was thinking that, it kicked on in exactly the way I thought it needed to. So I thought it was actually quite well paced for what it was. And like you, I like the people that were involved. I thought Robin pa- Robert Pattinson was a very good Batman. Um, I think his Batman voice was better than Christian Bale's croaky Batman voice. Um, however, I thought his Bruce Wayne was a bit less entertaining than Bale's. I thought the way Bruce was portrayed by Christian Bale was just... I I don't have a problem with what Robert Pattinson did, and I thought it worked for the story. 
but it's more fun to watch him pissing about and you know jumping in a in a a, a water feature with supermodels than than him kind of being a, a reclusive loner. If you want to play that kind of sort of twitchy, you know, not entirely kind of you know slightly off kilter version of Bruce Wayne, then Michael Keaton, while the rest of those Batman films I think aren't as good as other people say, um, I think that is um, uh, Michael Keaton is probably the best one at that. I, I still like Bale's suit better than than this one, but I still think it was a very good suit. Um, I thought I was going to hate his floppy fringe when I saw the trailer, but actually I didn't mind it. It was actually fine in the film. I didn't have a problem with it. Yeah, he's playing quite a young Bruce Wayne, yeah, which is Yeah, it fine. was fine. I thought Zoe Kravitz was a very good Catwoman. Um, I'm in the minority, I think. I still think Anne Hathaway is the best Catwoman there's ever been. No. But I thought Zoe no, Kravitz I thought was this, very, this very was good. was much better. I thought, I'm not a big fan of Anne Hathaway, and I thought her Catwoman was very much, I don't know, she was... She didn't, I didn't really like her motivations. I don't know if that's whether it's her fault or Christopher Nolan's yeah. fault for not really fleshing out the character, but it was kind of a case of, oh, I need a girl who's got to eat kind of vibe. No, yeah, Zoe Kravitz had a had a pretty strong motivation. Yeah, uh, it was a bit of fleshed out her I character. Yeah. I thought Jeffrey Wright was excellent as he always is. That's one of the best versions of Jim Gordon. It's not, I thought he's not playing Gary Oldman's um, uh, Jim Gordon, but I thought you could, you could take, you could take Jeffrey Wright's Jim Gordon and stick it in the um, in the Dark Knight trilogy, and it and it, and it would have it would have held up. He was really really good. Yeah, there was it was like it was it was similar to the Dark Knight in the sense that it wasn't trying to be far fetched, and it wasn't like a it wasn't like the sixties, and it wasn't like the mess that Zack Snyder came yeah, to yeah. screen. But it was it was kind of like in a kind of similar universe to yeah. the Christopher Nolan one, but it wasn't like the exact same. Like Christian Bale's Batman's totally different to Robert Pattinson's. That applies to almost yeah. every. Yeah, I think I, th- I think what's good, it, it, like Nolan, that what did well, he's committed to the fact that Batman has to look like Batman. Do you know what I mean? He's got to have the suit. He's got he's got to have that. But I think he's made the the villains, all the villains in the um, or most of the villains in the uh, in the in the in the Nolan trilogy, they just realised they couldn't really wear the original costumes from the comics because that would just look far too camp. And I think this is the same. They made good use of the. The, the Riddler sort of question mark logo and then built a character around that that was absolutely brilliant. I think Paul Dano was excellent. Um, similar with uh, with the Penguin. Blows my mind that that was Colin Farrell as the Penguin. Um, uh, I know, fucking hell. Um, I thought Andy Serkis Alfred was very good, maybe a bit underused. Um, yeah, they made him quite young and kind of trendy. Like he had a, he had a fucking like, he had a, a fade. Like he had a short back and sides and he was like basically kind of like not even like the granddad kind of vibe you get from Alfred, but like your dad kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. I mean, they made a couple of hints to a an interesting past for Alfred, which is in the comics. They haven't just invented that for the film. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming that there's another one of these coming and you might see a bit more from Alfred in the next one. Um, I also thought John Turturro was fantastic as Falcone. Uh, while I liked Tom Wilkinson, and I was I didn't have a problem with his portrayal of Tom Wilkinson, of, of Falcone, um, I, th- I think John Turturro was a better Falcone than Tom Wilkinson. Yeah. Um, he was excellent. Yeah. It was just, it was just excellent in every way. It was like, it wasn't like the big bad trying to save the world. It was just like, this city's a shithole. And what are you going to do about it? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I thought I thought the noir atmosphere was really, really good. I thought it was very much in keeping with the story. It's a great vision of Gotham. I think I still prefer Nolan's overall vision, and that's partly because what you get in the Nolan one is like here's a really nice view of, of the whole city, and you get a, a bit more sense of overall scale. This was very ground level. Now, on purpose, I think it was like that. 
Yeah. Um, and I think it worked for the film, but it did mean that there wasn't anything to quite compare to the train battle in Batman Begins or the truck chase or the skyhook jump in Dark Knight or even some of the big set pieces in Dark Knight Rises, but it did have a fucking tremendous car chase and I thought the final battle was very good. Generally, I think it was really good and I think that it just goes to show that if, if, you, if the person doing the Batman film has got a clear idea what they're going to do and it works and it's it's close enough to stuff that happened in the comics, then, you know, you've got every chance of doing something good. And I think they've done something very good here. I think, I think I, I, this, I don't want to jinx it, right? Cause DC's fucked up before. I, I, when I, I remember when, when Wonder Woman came out, Oh, they've cracked Wonder Woman. Well done. Keep it up. Um, and then they fucked up the second Wonder Woman film, but hopefully they'll give Matt Reeves another go and he will, um, more like this would, would be, I mean, I think a much needed shot in the arm for DC, I think. Yeah, f- fingers crossed. But if you haven't seen it, go see it. Definitely worth a watch, especially if you're a fan of of you know superhero movies that you know that are not good. I mean, I I think I think this is I think it's up there. I think it's up there as as one of the, one of the better Batman films that's ever been made. So it's not very, not very stiff competition, but yeah. we move. Yeah, very good. Yeah. So yeah, um, anything else you saw at the cinema? Um, no. Any any other new films that you caught, like a recent release that you caught on streaming or anything like that? Okay, you you talk about your stuff and then I'll get my Netflix and all that stuff loaded up and I'll try and see if I've anything. Sure, very good. Um, I I didn't I didn't see any other kind of sort of new releases um, this month. I think the Batman was kind of the kind of the big one. So, what, why don't I do my uh, my resolution for the month, which is always to um, to do a film as part of my like year long project. Uh, we decided that my year-long project this year is going to be 2022 with Kubrick Odyssey, in which I watch all of Kubrick's films. Um, and you know, each month I'm, I'm watching a, 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 an instalment in his, his his total filmography. By the end of the year, I will have watched all of his films doing that. I'm watching them in chronological order, so we'll just progress his career. Um, and this one was Paths of Glory, his World War One um, classic uh, anti-war film. Now this is something that uh, I've seen before. It's one of the ones where I was just, when I was first getting into films, and Kubrick comes up as one of the big names, and you know, you know, people you chat to say, "Paths of Glory," great film, one of his best early films, and it, and it absolutely is. It's based on a a book, an anti-war novel about World War One. It's set among the French army fighting in something like nineteen sixteen or seventeen. Uh, so the setting means that it's after some of the worst battles, the the horrendous casualties that have been taken. It's around about the time that uh, people have really realised what a, an absolute horror of a war people are caught up in. And for a range of reasons that no one can really justify, uh, a general is is told to uh, carry out an attack on, on the German line that has almost no strategic value. It's just they need to carry out an attack, look good for the, look good for the papers, show that they're doing something. The German, uh, that's the high, com- you know, the high command, the French high command is, you know, just saying, do it. You know, we, we, we need to show like we're doing something. The general decides he wants to do it because he, he's going to get offered a, a serious, like, uh, you know, promotion if he, if he does it. Um, he passes down the, uh, the, the command to take this German spot on the line, even though the Germans are very well defended and they're likely to get hurt. They admit that they're going to probably get over 50%, even up, up to 60% of casualties that will, you know, 60% of the men will die in this battle and the colonel in charge of this attack Kirk Douglas is um, you know thinks this is an absolutely terrible idea uh, he's given the choice well fine if you, you can always resign your commission and someone else can lead these men in the attack and Kirk Douglas's character 
kind of has no choice but to say, well, at least I know these men and at least I can kind of do my best for them if I'm here. If I abandon them when they're about to get, you know, slaughtered in this attack, then what does that mean for me? So he decides to press on with the attack. Uh, The whole thing is a shambles. Uh, the uh, some of the troops never even get out of the um, out of their trenches because the, the the shelling is actually killing some of it, their own men and the the German army is ready for them and is just uh, peppering the the no man's land with shots and artillery. They can't even get out of their trenches, uh, so the attack is called off, and uh, essentially three men are picked either at random or because their commanding officer doesn't like them or for whatever reason to be tried and court-martialed for um, for cowardice for the failure of the attack. Uh, and it just it just shows the poor decision-making, the flaws in the battle, the the, the absolute uh, disregard for human life in, in World War I. Um, it's, it's potentially a sort of an older um, viewpoint of the war. I think after in the immediate aftermath of World War I and in the, the writings of the, the war poets and a lot of the writers of World War I, there has been this kind of single narrative that it was lined led by donkeys. These soldiers were just completely left to rot and, and then crucified by um, uh, their generals. I think more recent uh, his, historical kind of study of the era has been more nuanced than that, but this really captures powerfully this anti-war statement. And you just come out of this film so angry it's beautifully shot i think when we talk about 1917 in the classic uh the classic section it will be an interesting comparison because while 1917 was very much uh designed to be composed as if it was one take with a single tracking shot this doesn't do as much as that but there is some amazing tracking shots and like immersive photography of the war there which um which I, I think suits the trenches because the trenches is essentially a narrow pathway that people have got to walk down, and I think that's why the tracking shot of the trenches is such a such a good like shot to use it in 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 a film about World War One, um, and because it's Kubrick, he's very he's he's done several war films. Thinking about it, Kubrick, and all of them he kind of casts his kind of pitiless eye on human flaws uh, as played out in a wartime situation and this is no exception and it's really brutal it's um considering when it's made it's about as brutal as it could possibly be about war in a you know without actually being banned and unable to be released in 1957 when it came out but because because Kubrick is so good at depicting things because you're not allowed to show any blood and you're not allowed to show anything too explicit but he still manages to make you really feel the horrors of war and then the horrors of them saying, oh, these guys have actually have got medals for gallantry and have been picked at random. They're now going to be tried for cowardice. You just, it's, it, you know, you're so furious and angry at the end of it. But, you know, beautifully shot, great performance from Kirk Douglas. As far as, Kirk Doug, uh, as, far as Kubrick's career is going, he was picked up to this film because uh, quite a few people have been impressed by his previous film, The Killing, that we discussed last month. Um, this got on the job with Kirk Douglas. Um, this was an interesting one because um, while Kirk Douglas was a big star and was pretty much calling the shots, his salary was almost a third of the total budget of the film back then. Um, Kubrick was actually the one calling the shots in this film and Kirk Douglas was actually quite impressed by a young guy, um, uh, Sandy Kubrick, who's not even 30 yet, is controlling you know, the, the film and telling these veteran actors what to do and making sure he gets all the takes that he wants. So this is the start of Stanley Kubrick making his films his way, um, even though... If you compare it to his later films, it doesn't feel as completely a Kubrick film as those ones, if you see what I mean, because by then he's he's gone and created his own productions, basically. But this is very much, you know, it 
it would have stood out in the 50s as kind of a cut above all the other films that are coming out at that time. And it was as a result of this film that he was picked to do his next film, Spartacus, with Stanley Kubrick, which is a very different film and experience. And we'll talk about that next month. But it's uh, it's an absolute belter. Have you seen Paths of Glory, James? Uh, no, I saw Spartacus with Kirk Douglas. I'm not seen yeah, yeah. Paths of Glory yet. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very powerful kind of anti-war statement, which kind of says everything. I mean, it's really... Like the uh, like the listener who who wrote in, and until recently, your best anti, your best World War One films were All Quiet on the Western Front and Paths of Glory, and it really is up there at the very very top rank. Um, yeah, nineteen seventeen is a is a further debate that we'll have later on in the show. Now, what I also like to do each month, uh, which I did last year for the Carpenter films, and I'm going to continue this year for the Kubrick films, is to provide an impromptu top ten of films linked to uh, the one that uh, we've been discussing, and uh, since the Paths of Glory's second half uh, mainly centres around uh, Court Martial. Uh, I decided to do an impromptu top 10 of Court Martial films. Now, these top 10s are often more diverse than this because uh, the, the subject matter can be a little bit less narrow or can be applied to a few different films, like, you know, different uses of a DJ. We had one one month and so on. This time, it is going to be a bit more limited to a certain type of film. Uh, so these are Court Martial films where a military trial of some kind uh, comes into play uh, and is a central part of the film. So, in no particular order, the impromptu top 10 court martial films, not including Paths of Glory, is Breaker Morant, A Few Good Men, The Kane Mutiny, Casualties of War, Carrington VC, King and Country, Sergeant Rutledge, Judgment at Nuremberg, Anatomy of a Murder, and Stalag 17. That is the Kubrick entry for this month, so we are three months into the Kubrick Odyssey, uh, and we're going to do Spartacus next month. Um, has that given you time, mate, to have a little look at your Netflix to see how you did for your resolution this month? I didn't need that much time because I've not really watched films. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I mean, we went to see the Batman. We've managed to give that a very good discussion. Um, the resolution is for you to just try and watch more films, and I think spending three hours at the cinema watching the new Batman film is, uh, I think, is a decent effort. Yeah, that was enough. <laughs> So, anything else for the roundup, mate? No. Okay, let's call it. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before, and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of these films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, from alternative history mockumentary Confederate States of America to surprise courtroom comedy hit My Cousin Vinny. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all of the films on our list and you can make recommendations there or in all the usual places on our socials. This month's entry is a highly acclaimed and innovative war film that James has already seen but I haven't until now. Our classics and recommended feature for episode 23 is 1917. So James, you saw this before I did. I think you saw it either when it came out or not long after. I um, saw it in... Aberdeen in The View and it was on one of their really big screens and I do feel like you missed some of it. I know you've got a nice telly but it's not as good. As not a, the same as watching it on the big screen. Yeah, it's it needs to be watched on a screen that's like the size of two double-decker buses. It's absolutely 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure how I how I missed it. I mean, I think it was a time when I had a lot on. <laughs> um, uh-huh. I wasn't seeing a lot, but uh, yeah, it's. Uh, you can see from watching it that the the the. the the, the, the cinematic impact is is pretty considerable, um, and I remember at the time for the you know when we were talking about the Oscars and Parasite winning Best Picture and everything, I think you I, I remember you saying at least in passing at the time that you think 1917 was a little bit unlucky with the number of awards that it won when it came out. Uh, yeah, I've, I watched Parasite and 1917. I have no idea why Parasite won Best Picture, Best Director because it's not got a fucking patch on 1917. Um, 1917 is just you don't get many films about World War One, and it just it blow, it blows you away because everyone knows that World War One was a compl- I mean all wars are travesty but World War One was an absolute disaster in terms of just you know a war of attrition where people are getting nowhere and people are just helplessly dying with no progress it, 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 it wasn't the war that anyone was expecting to have, was it? They were all they expecting to be, be home by months. Christmas, yeah. Yeah, and it was four years of just bleak. It was, just, uh, yeah, it was It was an absolute, it was an, a human tragedy. Um, so by way of a summary of, of the film, uh, 1917 is set in the titular year among a, a, a British regiment uh, near the front line in France. Uh, a young, is it sergeant, but basically a young soldier from a platoon and his sort of mate, it's two uh, young soldiers who are uh, yeah. basically hinted to be about 18 to 22. So that, yeah, Very that, young guys are basically selected for a special mission to get go to the go through the enemy lines and kind of cut through and go to the British uh, this British regiment battalion whatever that's about to um yeah their phone yeah their phone lines have been cut they're not aware that the um, that that's where the German line is probably at its strongest. Uh, it's it's this is while this is a fictional story, it's based around a real life operation uh, that the Germans did at the time, where they they staged a very big retreat. They went quite far back down their line and reinforced in the, where they thought was most strategic, uh, and they've weaved in a fictional story around their operation where this particular British regiment is about to attack the line, thinking, "Hey, we've got the Germans on the run. Let's go after them." Uh, they don't realise because the phone lines have been cut that they're about to be wiped out because they're attacking the German line in its strongest possible place. And these two men are essentially messengers who have got to go on foot across miles of, of no man's land and get there by the next morning and stop the attack. So it's not just a war film about the state of 1917. It is a film with like a the clock is ticking. It's a race against time, isn't it? Yeah. And that that's the premise of it. And it's... It's it really highlights the the kind of grave loss of life that World War One. All wars are obviously grave loss of life, but I don't know. It's just for me. I just remember when I was learning about World War One, it was an abs- It was just ridiculous. It was a war that didn't need to happen, and boys and young men were just sent to their death for little to no gain, and that's what happened for four years. And then at the end of it, they just kind of had a little sit down and said, "Yeah, that's the end of that." You know, nothing nothing was gained. You know, and that's. That's really kind of conveyed through this film, and I know it sounds weird that there's only two kind of characters in it. There's only two young guys, but they managed to really convey the kind of loss and the just how sad it is. It's you know, obviously no no spoilers in it, but there's a there's a bit where a you know a character is trying to help an an enemy soldier, an enemy um, an enemy plane's just come down, so a character tries to tries to help him and then the guy comes out of the plane and just kills him it, it kind of shows that particular scene and it, it's kind of 
that I, my, the way I read that scene was that it was trying to be an example of how in this whole war these people are just for reasons no one could really articulate if you took them out of that situation are just blindly conditioned to just try and kill each other and and it, it to just show how senseless it is yeah um so yeah i mean there are two the, the film gives you two things in that sense one is the the drama of these two men have got to cross enemy lines are they going to get to the uh to the 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 stranded British regiment and, and call off the attack in time. But the, the places they have to go to get there are field battlefields where, you know, the battles have recently been fought and they're just scenes of devastation, aren't they? I mean, they, they're tripping over dead bodies. Um, they're seeing where the, the, the trenches and the, 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 uh, the sort of the underground compartments where they were living, um, which are just, it just—it's it, a hellscape, isn't it? That they're, that they're clambering around and trying to get uh, to get across, isn't it? Yeah, and it's—it's it's just, it's so well done. I mean, we've not even talked like we've not even spoke about the the main kind of way that this film is shown, but it's shown as one cut. Yes, it's. I mean, I think Roger Deakins is. Uh, while I think all the actors in it are very, very good, and I think it's very well directed by Sam Mendes, who's done one sort of out-and-out war film before, which was Jarhead. Although that was not really about a specific war that much. It was kind of about the experience of soldiers who didn't actually get to see that much action. This is really the most kind of immersive, kind of full-on war film he's ever done. But I think Roger Deakins is the star of the show, the cinematographer. He, he thoroughly deserved his Oscar. Um, because the whole thing is is uh, constructed to look like it's a single take. Now it isn't a single take, but it's so seamlessly done that the whole thing seemingly plays out in real time over the shoulders, or you know, watching the the the, the two main actors as they, as they run through these scenes. There's a, you know, there is a there's one scene that you know, plot spoilers permitting. There is a scene where somebody blacks out and then wakes up, and you don't know how much time has passed. And apart from that, the whole thing seems to be playing out in real time as these guys run across you know no man's land the opening i i rewound i rewound the opening shot of this film a couple of times because it starts when there's real close-up of these two guys leaning against a tree and then getting called and you don't even see the officer who's calling them so right, you two up you get or he goes to the one guy right you pick one of your team and come with me and then it takes them from standing next to a couple of trees with a little kind of stream going past them walking past some various stations where soldiers are doing stuff, pass some horses and carts, and they keep walking, keep walking, keep walking until they're in a trench. And then they're walking through the trench and you realise now they're actually in right up at the sharp end of the war. And it's a it's breathtaking. It's the kind of tracking shot that, I, that clearly Sergio Leone had in mind for Leningrad, the film that we talked about as the one that got away a few episodes back. Yeah. And it is real masterful cinema. And like you say, I think... Uh, I will. I'm going to keep an eye out for when this is ever being shown on the big screen again, so that I can experience this. Yeah, you need it how it was intended. Like but you know, get 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 it on the biggest telly you've got. Sit as close to that telly as you can, and really get the full kind of scale of what you're watching because it's 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 beautifully done, isn't it? Well, the the whole point I think of this whole long establishing shot is that it gives you the scale of the war. Like they they're showing that you can be sat under a tree and then you can in like within five minutes you've walked through these massive humongous trenches yeah and you're in you're in the war you're on the front line and with by not having loads of tiny little cuts it really lets the 
the area and the environment that the film is in be established, and that's just mm-hmm. what's brilliant about the idea to do it. I, I mean, the difficulty of doing that as well um, is, you know... Well, yeah, th- this is where I, I think the film... What What's especially good about the film is that most of the time you're not just admiring, oh, wow, the camera work must have been really difficult to do that. A- after, after a while, you're just so immersed in the story. So l- afterwards, while we're talking about it, we're impressed by the degree of difficulty technically to do what they did. But while the film's on, you're just immersed in... There's that scene where they've got to go around. It's a giant crater that's filled with water and they've got to kind of clamber around it. And the, the camera just never stops kind of showing them. There's no kind of, oh, we'll cut and take a shot from the other side. They make each scene look amazing while essentially keeping the focus on you know on these two guys. It's it's brilliantly done. Brilliantly, brilliantly done. Yeah. Um, there's not really much else to say about it. Without because I want more people to see this film, so yeah. I don't want them to be kind of think you know be told the entire plotline. But if war films are your thing and you kind of like the different style of it being filmed the way it's filmed, as if it's one shot, and um, yeah, the fact that it's World War One, I, I think is quite interesting as well because it's all about you know all the war films you seem to get are about World War Two because yeah. World War One was essentially a war of attrition and it was a lot of just kind of going one trench to another. So mm. this film does it, you know. Superbly, the, the, yeah. This film, yeah, and it's it's it shows you more. I think of the overall. The only thing it, it shows you pretty much all you'll ever need, all you, you could ever possibly see in one film about the Western Front. It doesn't tell you about Mesopotamia or, or kind of the Eastern or the Turkish, you know, wars. Um, you know, Lawrence Arabia is a good one for the Middle Eastern Front of the war, but this is probably the most immersive and, and fullest vision of what the Western Front was like in in World War World War One. But, but by way of comparison, when I was thinking about it afterwards, I thought, I think it succeeds pretty much everywhere that I thought Dunkirk failed. I know Dunkirk's a World War II film. Yeah. I mean, I think Dunkirk was potentially a better story than this and potentially one of the best, could have been an, an absolutely stunning film. But I think it, it its attempt to set some specific um, technical goals for itself or technical limitations for itself to work within and the, the way in which it treat its story and be like a, a just a close-up of what it was like for the soldiers on the ground, I don't think Dunkirk succeeded. But I think at what this film is trying to do, I think it completely succeeds to, to make you feel as much as a film can, right? Because you're never going to feel what it's like when you're there. But I think this is the, the, to, to the best kind of possible account of what it was like in a film for those soldiers. Um, in a drama, anyway, there is the Peter Jackson documentary. Um, well, with a, with a film about a war, you really have to convey the gravity and the scale of what mm-hmm. it was like. Mm-hmm. So that's what Dunkirk got wrong. It showed two or three planes fighting and yeah. a few ships and like ten soldiers, whereas this shows like although it doesn't show the entire Western Front, it shows you the one small part and how big it and how yeah, impactful yeah. it was for these two people. Yeah, that's right. Ironically, it, sh- it it focuses on fewer characters than Dunkirk does, but shows you more of the war. It manages to show you more of what's going on and more of yeah. the scale of it, doesn't it? I thought it was it was superbly done. I mean, I thought it was interesting to compare it to Paths of Glory because I watched both of these films, you know, no more than a few days apart. Um, obviously, Paths of Glory could not show the, the limitations of budget and the time in the 1950s could not show... Uh, as much, I think, and obviously, you know, Paths of Glory was black and white. This is colour; it's more vivid in that way. I think Paths of Glory does a similarly good job of, the, of showing the trenches and the horrors of the battle. I think it, it, it was. They're both brilliant on that score. 
I think this is more immersive and shows you more of the kind of overall, you know, Western Front itself. I think Paths of Glory takes more time to comment and more overtly comment on the leadership and the war and the disregard for human life of the war. Whereas this is a little bit more about, it kind of, I think, I don't want this to sound like criticism because I don't, I don't think this is a, you know, soft soaps on the horrors of the war at all because, you know, at one point someone falls and a hand goes into a dead body. So they're by no means soft soaping the horrors of the war. So that's not what the point I'm trying to make. I, I think Paths of Glory comments more overtly and criticizes more overtly the people who started this war and, 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 were, and were conducting it. Whereas in this, it is a little bit more like the, the generals that you see are, we're trying to save lives here. And the generals that he's going to see will presumably listen if, you know, once you tell them not to not to continue with the battle because it's hopeless. Whereas yeah. in, in Passive Glory, they showed the people in charge as being a lot more cynical than that. Um, I think that's just a matter of taste, really. Um, I mean, overall, I thought this was a brilliant... I mean, <laughs> these are tiny, tiny criticisms, but just for the sake of actually, you know, being as, as objective as possible... I did think it relied a little bit on a couple of kind of plot contrivances to complete the story. I think it was worth it for the the overall power of the story, but you know I did think it was like kind of it is a little bit of a two guys on a mission kind of story, and they had to kind of you know they had to kind of bend and twist the narrative a bit to to make that happen. Yeah. Um, but I think it was it succeeded absolutely superbly for what it was. I think it's Sam Mendes' best film. Um, you know, interestingly, he won Best Director for American Beauty and that won Best Picture, and that, that film isn't anything like as good as this. Um, I think Sam Mendes did a, a terrific job on this film. I think, based on the um, uh, on the, the commemoration at the end of the film, he had a, a grandfather or anyway a relative who was at the war and came back with stories of what happened. I think it was his attempt to, to be a tribute to the soldiers who went through all this, and I think he succeeds absolutely superbly at that. Yeah, no, it's um, it's just it it tells a really dark time in human history um, very effectively and doesn't try and hide away from it. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, and and I think you know the fact that it uh, it they got a decent amount of money to make this film and it made a good amount of money at the box office. It's quite hopeful that films like this still get made nowadays. Yeah. So yeah, I think. This is look. This is on me that I didn't get around to watching it when I did see it. But if you haven't seen, if you haven't seen it, um, you must get around to it and try and see it on the biggest screen you possibly can. Totally. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we're featuring one of my favourite films of the past 10 years, which hasn't been widely seen and was somewhat divisive amongst those who did see it. The hidden gem for episode 23 is You Were Never Really Here. Now, I recommended this because I, I genuinely think this is a hidden gem and I, I want people to hear about this film. But I have to say, James, I went into this thinking it was 50-50 whether you were going to like this or not, because it is a very specific type of film um, that uh, not everyone liked and 
it's not one of those ones where I would say, oh, I don't think you got it. I think this film does things in a certain way and some people are either going to like it or not like it. And I was 50-50 about whether you were going to like it or not. But I wanted I, I wanted you to see it and experience what, what the film was trying to do. Yeah, no, I get that. I, I didn't necessarily hate it. Um, it's... A very, it's very Lynn Ramsey. This film, it's a very yeah. dark film. If you've ever seen me talk about Kevin, you kind of understand. You know, it's a very neo noir kind yeah. of dark um, film, and it's got dark kind of plot themes and topics. You know, it's talking about human trafficking. Um, and she's not one for a straightforward linear narrative, is she? No, um, it's obviously got Johnny Greenwood doing the score. So it's it's quite- it's very much about. You can see the way they've used the music and the way they've used photography and the way they've used everything in the film is they're actually trying to... um, They're trying to make the audience feel something and they're trying to make the audience experience a series of events in the same kind of slightly disconnected way that the main character is. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes you watch a film and and the, the, the director is saying to the audience, right, watch this, watch what this character is doing. And some films, the, the, the director is trying to place you in fully in the scene. And and that's disorienting because you're trying to piece together. It's almost like you've, you know, if you remember the old show Quantum Leap, it's almost as if you've quantum leaped into the body of Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. And from there, you have to piece together why he's as fucked up as he is, what situation yeah, is he, what what's he doing. What's going on, yeah. I mean, the the opening scene... It's it's actually worth talking about the opening scene before you then give the summary of what the film's about because I think it gives you an idea of the of the disorienting nature of this film. In the opening scene, you see uh, Whacking Phoenix packing up in a cheap motel somewhere. It's like Cincinnati or somewhere in one of these cities in the center of America where, you know, I could br- roughly tell you where they are on a map, but not not exactly. Huh. And he's got a bloodstained hammer and he's got a bunch of stuff that he's packing together, duct tape, various other sort of implements. It all looks a bit sinister. And he picks up a necklace, which is clearly like a, a young woman or a girl's necklace. And there's a picture of a, a, a girl there as well. And if you don't know what's going on in the film, you could be watching a serial killer packing up after just torturing and killing someone. Yeah, no, totally. And then what unfolds is that he was actually there to, um, because he'd been hired to rescue a woman or a young girl on behalf of their family. Okay, and that's all you get. He meets his contact and he says, yep, family are very grateful to get their little girl back. Well done. You think, okay, so he's the person who does that shit, but he's clearly the person you get, The person he's the person who gets his hands dirty to do sort of, you know, un, unofficial work. And it pieces together and it's kind of up to the audience. If, if you're fascinated enough by the idea of Lynn Ramsey doing what she does and Joaquin Phoenix giving what I think is one of his best performances, based on the idea that it's a really screwed up film about a really screwed up guy who is rescuing trafficked women, you might want to just go and watch the film because what we're going to tell you now isn't going to spoil the plot but it does change your experience of the film if you if you if you have it explained to you what the film's about. Do you know what I mean, mate? Yeah, because you go into it thinking what. Yeah, you have it's very it's very kind of not vague, but it's like it's not going to change the yeah. feature the story. Yeah. So Joaquin Phoenix plays Joe, a former soldier and also former federal agent, and it's presumably that he was in combat in you know either Iraq or Afghanistan. Given this film comes out in 2017, 2018. Um, and he then was a federal agent. And he and he now, having worked in those jobs, is now a mercenary who gets paid, you know, cash under the table to uh, for various jobs. And he seems to specialise in extracting girls from a trafficking or sexual exploitation predicament. Someone, you know, member of their family still heard of them and cares about them and says, will you go and get my, you know, girl back by any means necessary. And he is constantly plagued by flashbacks to previous trauma. 
that he's seen when he was a soldier and what he's seen as a federal agent. He's seen a lot of death and horror, and he's also having flashbacks. And the opening scene of him in the in the in the in the motel is intercut with him having some sort of flashback to him when he was subjected to physical abuse by his father. So what I've just explained, you piece together over the first kind of like half hour of the film. There are lots of little kind of things. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a bit where there's a bit where a character sees him going into his apartment and he has a big problem with this. And he goes to speak to him and says, he shouldn't have seen me going into my apartment. And it doesn't explain why, but about an hour later in the film, you find out why. Do you know what I mean? And there's a scene where he's asked to take some uh, girls from somewhere in East Asia, teenage, young young women anyway, from China or, or South Korea or somewhere in East Asia, are having, a, it's a nice scene. They're, they're a bunch of girls on holiday having a great time, having a giggle in New York. There's, oh, look at these buildings. We've always wanted to come here. Excuse me, sir, will you take a photograph of us? And it's Joaquin Phoenix's character. And he's standing there holding the girl's phone, taking a photograph of them the way you would. And he's completely freaked out by it. And the women's faces look like death masks to him. And it just cuts to the next scene. You go, well, well, that was fucked up. What's his problem? And you find out later why that um, why that traumatized him. Yeah. But what it's trying to do, it's trying to give you this. It's trying to create the atmosphere that he's living in, and it's trying to, in a in a way that makes it more real for you, because you're like over his shoulder experiencing this. Show you why his past traumas are probably the biggest battle he has to fight, bigger than the battle he has to fight with the, the people that he's, he's fighting against because the rest of the film is about him trying to rescue this girl on his on his latest case from some really murderous people. Um, so, I mean, in terms of that, I mean, what, what, did you, what did you think of it overall, mate? I mean, I think we've kind of hinted at it, but what did you think of it overall when you sort of got to the end of the film? Um, yeah, it's it's a bit of a... It's, it's not a confusing one, like but like I said, it's one of those ones that... It, it wants to establish plot and it wants to establish characters, but it doesn't just want to explicitly give you, like, exposition. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's... Or, like, it doesn't want to just give the plot away just through the usual tropes, you know. It's yeah, like, it, 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 it explains what's happening, but perhaps not in the way you're expecting it to, doesn't it? Yeah. And um, sometimes, And sometimes, when it's explaining what's happening, it explains it... Everything that the story explains, it kind of explains from Whacking Phoenix's point of view. And because he's had flashbacks and because he's had what could be a hallucination, when you then see from Joaquin Phoenix's point of view him piecing together what's happened in the story, you could either, I think that is what's happened in the story, or it could be what Joaquin Phoenix thinks is happening in the story. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it is really kind of, um, it's very disorienting to be in that situation, isn't it? Yeah, no, I I agree. But in terms of like my enjoyment of it, it's not one, it's another one of those films I wouldn't say I enjoy. Um, but it's it's an interesting story, and it's it's obviously Joaquin Felix, uh, Felix Joaquin Phoenix, who's um, a terrific actor. Um, yeah, it's uh, no, I I wouldn't say I enjoy because it's not one of those films you enjoy, but it is great performances and it's good filmmaking. I like the way it was shot as well. I. Um, just that, like you said, that kind of perspective. It really tries to give you the kind of perspective over the shoulder, not like, like literally, but it's like kind of like Joaquin Phoenix's. But the whole the whole thing is from his point of view, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I know it's interesting. I mean, yeah, it is from his point of view. So when it when it cuts away from Joaquin Phoenix to related events, because without giving any spoilers, Joaquin Phoenix is doing something, and then you, you see a scene where there are some, you know, another another 
part of the story unfolds. You go, oh shit, that's happening, is it? But you could almost see it from being, he's realised that that's happened, is how you find out it's happened. Do you know what I mean? It's very, uh, it's it's very kind of tight. It's interesting, I mean, because I like the way it was shot as well. I thought it was very, very well done. I thought it'd be interesting, James, for you to kind of, you know, guess or, or, or try and measure how high or low budget this film was. I mean, I know the box office was only about $10.9 million, which isn't a lot, which gives me the impression that it's either an absolute flop or they did it for about a tenner. Um, so while I found it very difficult to get an actual number of what the budget was, it was definitely a, a very, very small budget film. So that box office, while I think it deserved to be seen more widely, and it's a shame they didn't get a better release in places and, and be seen more, um, it probably made a profit on that $10 million based on what a low-budget film it was. Um, they only had 27 days to shoot the whole film. Lynn Ramsey said in an interview that for, even though the filming uh, the filming schedule was only 27 days, a quarter of her director's fee went on childcare. Wow. Um, when Joaquin Phoenix hums the shower scene music from Psycho, which is just like a... It's a scene with his mum. He lives with his mum in, in his apartment. And he's that she's watching a Hitchcock film, and he jokingly, you know, makes a stabbing noise and hums the the psycho music at her as a bit of kind of playful humour between relatives. Um, they had to go and negotiate copyright permission to do that, right? Because it's you know the psycho music that even when you do something like that, you need to get permission. Um, they found out that was going to cost thirty thousand thirty thousand dollars to 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 have in the film, and Lynn Ramsey seriously considered cutting it out of the film to save money. Wow. Um, so they really wanted to get this thing made. The thing is, they, they I think they made a virtue of their low budget. It's a very, very good example of how to make a good film on a low budget because when you go back then and realise that there's a scene where he goes into a, a place that's full of sex traffickers and, and deals with them, um, they didn't have the money to do it as the kind of action scene where you shoot for five days with four cameras and catch every angle and all the blows and everything. Um, so part of that is filmed solely on CCTV and Wacking Phoenix goes into a room you hear some muffled sounds and then an absolutely fucked up bleeding kind of damaged guy is thrown out the door into the hallway where Wacky Phoenix has presumably just thrown him. And it's a very clever way to shoot because I bet they'd have done a great job if they had had more money and time to shoot those scenes. But I thought it was very striking the way they did shoot with the time and money they had for some of those scenes so that they could save up and have a, have a good impact on some of the scenes that they, that they did use. Um, and, you know, I think the mood of the film is very, very well captured by Lynn Ramsey. She's, uh, she's, she's a very kind of uh, individualist director in the way she does things. And um, I thought this was really, really interesting. I think it, it, it has some sort of uh, plays back to Taxi Driver because it's, you know, there, there is hints of, um, you know, wrongdoing by high up officials and, and politicians. And he's a, he's a loner, he's a hairy kind of you know, traumatised war veteran kind of taking the matters into his own hands in a very different setting. And it's set in a really squalid-looking New York, so it has some interesting lineages back to Taxi Driver. I think there are similar films, anything where, like, someone is rescuing a, a woman in that kind of situation. It's been played in a number of ways. Taken plays it one way as a pure adventure film. Other films might have taken it as a more kind of straight-up drama. Yeah. This takes it and, and shows it from an angle you might not have seen before. And I think it's very interesting to see it from that angle. And I think as a portrayal of someone wrestling with trauma and PTSD, Joaquin Phoenix is absolutely on fire in this film. And um, the good news is that Joaquin Phoenix and Lynn Ramsey are going to be working together on their ne on her next film. Nice. Which what is, comes out of it? It's actually it's possibly actually their next, but 
one film because I think she's been um, she's been hired to do a Stephen King adaptation, The Google of Tom Gordon, and then after that comes out, possibly next year, um, it's a film called Polaris, which is going to be in some sort of environmental horror film directed by Lynn Ramsey and starring Joaquin Phoenix. So if you watch this film and like how the two of them work together, you're going to get to see some more of that. Nice. So, so that, that's our hidden gem. I, th- I think we very much fulfilled the brief of this film because I think this is an interesting film that if you haven't seen it, it'll give you something different to what you've normally used to. So, you know, I think James's recommendation is slightly more qualified than mine, but I think this is definitely a, a, a film worth seeking out. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we mark Robert Pattinson's highly anticipated debut in DC's latest Batman film with a look back at a previous attempt to reboot the series. The one that got away for episode 23 is Darren Aronofsky's Batman Year One. So the reason I thought this was interesting, mate, is obviously because there's a new Batman film coming out and another reboot. I think what's also interesting about this film is this film is sort of on a journey to the films we eventually did see, um, yeah. like the Nolan and everything else. So it's like an interesting, as, as well as being a story of a, of a given film that they tried to make and didn't, it's also a very interesting chapter in the story of how DC's Batman series did play out in the 21st century. So that's why I thought it was interesting to look at. But, you know, my usual question on this one is how much were you aware of this before we decided to do it as a feature? Um, a little bit. I did a little bit of reading, obviously, when we you know, said this is what we're going to do. Um, but in terms of um, anything about it, not not that much. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as, by, as, as sort of a... Sort of a, a sort of a chapter in film history. It's probably worth putting this overall into context. Um, the the original Batman comics date back to about 1940. The original Detective Comics. The first attempts to do screen adaptations of Batman started with one of the uh, the film serials in the era where they were doing things like Flash Gordon and Dick Tracy, where you'd get 12 to 15 episodes of 20 minutes each of like Daring Do with a cliffhanger after every episode. They did a Batman one. That's all a bit laughable because I don't think they had the same kind of personal trainers and stunts and budgets that, you, that you'd expect in a Batman film now. Um, then in the 1960s, you had the uh, legendary, very famous, it was still being quoted and the theme tune was still being hummed in school playgrounds 20 years later when I was a kid. Uh, the Batman series with Adam West as Batman and Burt Ward as Robin with the, uh, the, the catchy theme tune, the zap and kapow sound effects being shown on, on TV, on the screen in speech bubbles. Everything is camp as Christmas. Uh, and, and to be honest, that was most people's idea of a Batman. And they did a film version of that um, just called Batman in 1966, which was the ultimate culmination of camp and nonsensical Batman, holy rusted metal Batman, um, and all of that. And in the late 80s, it, it it seems obvious now, but in the late 80s, it was a little bit more of a, oh, they're going to do what with Batman? When they decided to reboot it with a slightly more darker uh, and credible edge uh, with Tim Burton at the helm and Michael Keaton as Batman. And that was a huge hit. Um, have you seen the 1989 Batman, mate? Yeah, but I don't like Tim Burton, so I didn't really like that film. I like Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton's great. Yeah, see, that's that's from the era of Tim Burton where he did do some films that I like. But it's interesting with this film. I think it's it, that film and Batman Returns were very successful at the time and are very fondly remembered by Batman fans. For me, I think they're saddled a little bit with Tim Burton's kind of slightly kooky sensibilities. 
and the fact that it was very hard to completely break from the kind of Zap Kapow version of Batman, which is why the Jack Nicholson stuff and the fact that there are like colourful balloons floating over Gotham City and it's got that slightly um, quirky view to it because I don't think you could completely get away from that with the, the way Batman had portrayed at that time. In the same way that the Bond films took a while to get away from Roger Moore. Um, but that was the first attempt to kind of do things in a sort of a darker and more, you know, uh, moody, atmospheric, shot at night kind of way. That and Batman Returns in 92. Then they kind of went back to ridiculous comic book stuff. And in 1995, they did Batman Forever. In 1997, they did Batman and Robin. Val Kilmer is Batman in, in the first one of those, and then George Clooney in the second one. And I think you've seen those, mate. Have you seen Batman Forever and Batman and Robin? Um, unfortunately, yeah. I mean, Val <laughs> Kilmer's Batman isn't ter- like isn't you not know, as bad as the that god awful Batman and Robin film. They, yeah, like, I mean, they did yeah. kind of damage the kind of Batman. Reputation. I remember, I remember when Batman Forever came out. I went to see it on a late show. I'd been working a shift in a in a shop, and I couldn't sleep. And I thought I'll watch the Batman film, and I wasn't expecting a huge amount. And I thought it was, it was quite fun in places, and it was still quite actiony. I thought it was far too car- you know cartoonish and, and silly. I think the saving grace of the film actually is Jim Carrey because he just manages to pull off his his Riddler. He could probably have done a more serious version of the Riddler. And a little bit of film history here because it does actually it does actually reach out to what we eventually got with like the you know Heath Ledger's version of the Joker and Paul Dano's version of the Riddler that you get now. I don't know if you know this, mate, but in 1989, um, Robin Williams almost played the Joker. That would have been excellent. Uh, he 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 campaigned hard for the part. Because I think Robin Williams quite rightly realised that would have been the perfect vehicle because what better way to combine his manic comic energy with the psychotic type of character that we now know he can play because he did um, a one-hour photo in Insomnia where he plays like a psychotic killer and the thought of him giving it going full bore on that is genuinely very interesting. The sad thing is, is that while he nearly got the part, he was actually offered the part and given a fee and all getting ready to do it Actually, the people making the film Warners, they had wanted Jack Nicholson all along. Jack Nicholson had been saying he didn't want to do it. And they used Robin Williams to get Jack Nicholson because they offered Robin Williams the part because Jack Nicholson was saying no and then contacted Jack Nicholson and said, look, mate, we're going to give this to Robin Williams unless you agree to do the part. And Jack Nicholson relented and took the part. So Robin Williams was really fucked off because he thought he had the part. He was getting ready to play the Joker. So wait, why did they do that? The- they what they Jack want. They didn't want Robin Williams doing the part. No, no. Jack Nicholson. They originally wanted Jack Nicholson to play the Joker, and for, for actually for actual years they courted him, tried him to get to play the part. Robin Williams really wanted to play it, and they thought, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to offer the part to Robin Williams, yeah, but we're going to go back to Jack Nicholson one last time. If Jack Nicholson says no this time, then the part is Robin Williams, yeah. But if if we can persuade Jack Nicholson that this is his last chance to say yes if he really wants the part. We'll take Jack Nicholson and we'll we'll pay Robin Williams off and get rid of him and and, and have Jack Nicholson instead. That's mental. They use, so they used Robin Williams. Now I, I mean I think I'd look. I think Jack Nicholson is one of the finest actors he's ever stepped in front of a screen, and I, I do like his version of the Joker. But I think Robin Williams' version of the Joker would have been exceptional. And after all that, he was going to play the Riddler in Batman Forever. And there is a, like a parallel universe where maybe the third Batman film is still done with Tim Burton and still has that slightly darker edge. And Robin Williams could play a really psychotic Batman villain and play the Riddler in that film. And it was a near miss that that kind of like darkness and, 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 and real kind of drama could have, could have gone into the film. 
Sadly, they decided to go another way. And the the financial success of Batman Forever just emboldened the director, Jules Schumacher, to just kind of go, oh, well. Because he, he was, whenever anyone said this doesn't make any sense, he goes, oh, I don't care, it's a comic. So he was just paying no, you know, he just didn't, he didn't think comics had any kind of merit. He could just do whatever the fuck he wanted with them. So they did Batman and Robin and made an absolutely terrible mess of it. Uh, and that is when this version of Batman, Batman Year One with Darren Aronofsky, that's when the story starts. It's after Batman and Robin, they regrouped and said, okay, we've got to stop doing this cartoony shit. Because Batman and Robin is an absolute travesty. It's one of the worst films ever made. It's possibly the, it's one of the worst superhero films ever made. Although it's not as it's not as painful to watch as Batman versus Superman, um, in my humble opinion. Oh, they're both great. <clears throat> it's it, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to watch them in a double bill and decide. Put it that way. Um, but at the end of the nineties, Joe Schumacher goes, "Oh, okay, I get it. They don't like that sort of thing. So why don't I direct a sort of a, a more kind of gritty Batman that's a bit more like the comics and people." eventually decided that if they're going to do that, Joel Schumacher isn't the director to do it. Um, yeah. And they were looking around for a different director. And I think they might have talked to a couple of different directors, but in the end they went with Darren Aronofsky. And he's an interesting choice for a film like this because he'd done a couple of very kind of independent films by this time. The Pie, which is a tiny budget film. Um, I think it cost like $40,000 to make or something. And it's like a very well-regarded little indie film. And Requiem for a Dream, which is a, a very dark film about heroin addiction, which was highly controversial. And he's very highly regarded for the two films he directed, but he doesn't um, jump out at you as the kind of person to direct a big um, DC superhero film. But the rationale for the, the producers at the time, Warners, is that, um, well, that's what Tim Burton was before he did um, before he did Batman. He did um, uh, a Pee Wee Herman film, which is a, an American comedy which hasn't really crossed the Atlantic, and Beetlejuice. So there was nothing in his CV to say he was going to do a big superhero film either. So I thought, well, at least we'll be getting a different and interesting director with an interesting vision. Uh, I mean, what did you find out about what Darren Aronofsky wanted to do with the film once he was kind of brought on board? Did he not want to take a kind of similar route to the Dark Knight kind of vibe? Or is it, am I, have I completely misjudged that? No, you're right. He did He did want to do something similar because what he did was he he wanted initially... His first proposal, which would have been really interesting, actually, and the only reason I think they didn't accept this is they wanted to reboot Batman and not do a not do like a, an old end of career Batman story. His original pitch was to do The Dark Knight Returns, which is a famous comic book by Frank Miller. The only screen version of that is uh, part of the DC animated films, which is yeah. very good, by the way. It's really good. I've got I've got those I've got those on on Blu-ray. They're really good. They, it's it's quite long, so it's in two parts. Um, and his idea was to have Clint Eastwood as an aging Batman, because Batman is old in this version of the story and is, you know, coming back to fight. That has a scene in which Batman fights Superman, funnily enough, The Dark Knight Returns, but it's it's about Batman coming back after years of absence um, to save Gotham after it's really fallen into disrepair. He said he wanted to shoot uh, on location in Tokyo so that Gotham City would look like that kind of really neon-soaked kind of, uh, you know, uh, over, you know, you know, over-the-top giant city. Um, and they found that very interesting, but the argument was we don't want to... If they'd had, like, a series of Batman films that had all been part of a general arc, you know, they might have done that. But they wanted to reboot. They want to go back to the beginning. And so, okay, if you want to go back to the beginning, let's do Batman Year One, right? Which is another Frank Miller comic based on Batman, and it's based on the very early years. It doesn't contain the origin story of Batman, but it's basically... Batman just after he's um, decided to become 
Batman the superhero. Um, and in this, he, um, he's been away traveling for years, learning to be a superhero. And he comes back to Gotham and nobody knows quite what to expect of Bruce Wayne being back. And he decides to be Batman. So it is quite similar, the storyline, um, to Batman Begins, because Christopher Nolan drew on this, partly drew on the same source material for Batman Begins. Okay. Really? That's what that's very really interesting, because a lot of what he wanted to do with Batman Year One, they did end up doing with Nolan in the first film. Um, what Aronofsky wanted to do, though, was really quite, quite a departure. Um, he worked with Frank Miller, the guy who came up with the original comic, but he wanted to really kind of strip down Batman. Uh, Batman U1 is already quite stripped down because the idea is is that Batman's only just starting out. He hasn't got all the gadgets. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and it's a much more kind of street-level version of Batman. Interestingly enough, I think there are elements of Batman U1, both in Batman Begins and in the new Batman film with Robert Pattinson. But what Darren Aronofsky wanted to do was really take it even further than that to say like he wouldn't really have like the full-on Batsuit, as you'd expect. His Batmobile would be like a tricked-out, like uh Lincoln car, it wouldn't be like a specialized vehicle like the the bridge jumper or what um what Robert Pattinson was driving. Um at, at this point the the Waynes would have lost their fortune, so he's kind of he was actually, you know, homeless and taken in by a car mechanic. Alfred is actually a guy called a Little Al, is an African American who runs a car mechanic shop, which is where he gets his car from and takes him in and helps him. So Batman isn't rich, he doesn't live in Wayne Manor, he doesn't have a bat cave and he doesn't have a lot of gadgets. Um, which, in my humble opinion, that sounds like Darren Aronofsky actually wanted to make a Daredevil film. Because he, once you take away too much of what makes Batman Batman, you don't. It's it's kind of a different superhero. If you yeah. want that, if you want that dark city dwelling guy who comes out at night and beats people up, who hasn't got a lot of money and gadgets, that's Daredevil, in my humble opinion. Um, now Frank Miller, Frank Miller didn't think this was all a bad idea, and I think the reason for that is Frank Miller had already done a lot of Batman. So if a director comes along to him and says, I'd actually like to do a really different version of Batman where he doesn't have all the things he normally has, Frank Miller's like, yeah, sure, I haven't done that before. I'll have a crack at that. Because he's done The Dark Knight Returns and he's done Batman Year One. He's done a bunch of other things. Um, and uh, this is like in the early 2000s now where he's they're really pushing this. And I think what the biggest departure would be that this Aaron Ar Aronofsky's version of, of Batman was going to be quite violent and quite dark. He was going to torture criminals until they talked and stuff like that. And even Frank Miller, who was known for stuff like, you know, uh, Sin City and, and things like that, thought that was a bit strong for Batman. So it was it was kind of this kind of it was going to be this meld of of what was in Batman Year One and Darren Aronofsky's own ideas. Uh Catwoman in that version of Batman is a, a an S and M dominatrix uh, escort who 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 also was who also is Catwoman on the side, which is a very Frank Miller idea. Or most of his female characters do shit like that. Um, so he's really going off in this completely different direction. Um, I mean, I don't I don't know what you think of w whether that would be enough Batman for you. I don't think it would um, be enough Batman for me. I. I think it, I'm I'm always open to new kind of takes on Batman. So every everything you said there is kind of like okay, I like to see how that works because I'm I think because we've seen so many takes that's quite a different one. Yeah. So I actually quite like the idea of like okay, Batman's not the the guy he that we all know him to be. So I wouldn't mind that. Yeah, I mean I think I think part of the reason they didn't want to go down that route is like I say they're trying to reboot the series. They what the, the message is you know Batman and Robin wasn't what Batman is meant to be. Now we're going to give you something that's more like Batman is meant to be which probably isn't the time to go off in a completely new direction than this. 
it's the sort of thing they could very easily do in the animated series because you can be a bit multiverse. You can be a bit, well, this is try this version of Batman. There's a graphic novel series in Batman um, uh, called Batman versus Dracula. The first one's called Red Rain. I've got that. It's a, it's a lot better and less silly than it sounds, but Batman is attacked by vampires and becomes a vampire because Dracula's coming to town and only someone with similar powers can fight him. So you can do a parallel story of Batman and give them people a different take on it. In the comics, you can do that all the time because you've got 60 years of Batman to work with, right? Yeah. Um, but in this, in this, I think they just said, look, guys, I'm really sorry, but we want to go back to a little bit more back to Batman basics than this. And they, they didn't go along with it. I'm kind of glad it's. Uh, I'm kind of glad it's not happened though, because I'm not a big fan of Darren Aronofsky. I don't think he would have been able to direct. I like the idea of that story, but I would have rather it was in someone else's hands. Because I'm so. Yeah, I'm kind of glad this thing didn't come through. See, the final twist in the tale is that Aronofsky admitted years later that he didn't really want to do a Batman film. I mean, if they if they'd go in litter, he'd have done it. But what he was really trying to do is he was trying to work with a big studio to get his pet project, The Fountain, made. The one he ended up eventually doing with Hugh Jackman and I think Rachel Weisz. Because based on the films he'd had before, he was never going to get the money to do a big film. And he thought, I'll work with a big studio to kind of show them, you know, that I can do, you know, cinematic things. Um, and I think in the end, it probably worked out best for everyone involved because Darren Aronofsky did get to make his film The Fountain instead. I think what the studio said was, look, we like you. We like these ideas. It's really interesting. It's not quite what we want to do. What would you like to do instead? Yeah. So Aron Aronofsky got what he wanted out of the project. And for Warners and DC, what they got was, well, I'm glad someone's come. I think it opened the door for them to say, actually, you know, if someone does actually have a vision of this darker, more kind of, you know, uh, noirish Batman, I'd like to see that, but not quite how Aronofsky's doing it. And along came Nolan, who said, well, I could tell you what, I could do something with Batman Year One if you wanted. And, and, and Christopher Nolan gave them more of what they actually wanted, because what Christopher Nolan was doing is the ideas that he wanted to bring to the screen he realised he could package that into something that would work for the studio who wanted a big film, right? Would work for the audience because it had enough of real Batman stuff in it and would deliver all the action they wanted, but would enable him to go and do Batman the way he wanted to do it. Uh, and as a result, I think everyone got what they wanted out of this film in the end. That's good. Um, but yeah, it's one that got away. I don't think we'll ever see this because Batman Year One was then subsumed into... Um, into Batman Begins and a lot of the same kind of imagery um, has, has, has been used for the Batman. Um, but yeah, there's some interesting concept art, art out there um, and you know the graphic novel Batman Year One is also out there and is worth a read. So that, that, that's, uh, that's where that one goes. We close the first rule of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. There are, of course, examples of good remakes when they were justified and well done. This feature does not discuss those films. What we look at here are remakes that disrespected the memory of a film they should have left well alone. This month we take a look at one of the more mystifying recent remakes, in which a notoriously silly but fun Cold War action film from the 80s was revived for a modern era where it all made even less sense. The remake Hate Watch for episode 23 is the 2012 version of Red Dawn. So this will all be kind of a bit of a mystery to you, mate. I mean, Red Dawn from the 80s is not something that I think you grew up with or anything like that. 
No, so I gave both of these films a watch. Well, I didn't watch all of the the remake. Oh, God knows what you thought of the original. (laughs) So, it wasn't my thing. But you know what? I understand why someone from your generation would appreciate it. You know what? Like, I'm happy to kind of take my young, naive, modern bias away from it and think, right, okay, this is obviously... Some people have got an affinity for this film. So I watched it and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, cool. And then I went, right, so this is the, the remake in 2012. They've changed it to North Koreans, right? They've got Chris Hemsworth. Okay, is it? Am I thinking of the Chris Hemsworth? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Chris Hemsworth. I thought it might have been Liam. Um, and then they've got Josh from Drake and Josh in it. And I went, oh fuck's sake! And it, yeah, it, it was shit, wasn't it? it? I watched. It's 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 just baffling why they would have done it. I mean, the reason like the original Red Dawn was a hit was one. There's a certain kind of like you know Chuck Norris films about. But there's a Chuck Norris film called Invasion USA, which has a very similar thing where there's a bunch of baddies and a and, and only kind of your usual maverick kind of right wing fantasy action hero can uh, can stop them, and this is the, Red Dawn was the Brat Pack version of that, and for for someone like me, it was like well, it's a video that's got you know lots of people being shot and it's got lots of action in it, uh, and you know a couple of people have seen it, oh there's a bit when this happens a bit when that happens oh yeah I'll give that a watch, and when I did watch it I thought well, the politics of this is a bit weird. You know, for example, there's a bit where the Russians round up everybody who's got a red, who owns a registered firearm, uh, and it's an argument at the time for the National Rifle Association to say, "Oh, you should never register your firearms. You should never like cooperate with the government on how many guns you've got." Because what if the Russians invade and decide to lock us all up? So it's like absolutely kind of mad, like survivalist horseshit from an oddball guy in John Milius who. I think I've said this before, haven't you, that the, the, John Milius, who was the, the basis for John Goodman's character in The Big Lebowski. Right. And he's a, a weirdo, but at least he was an interesting filmmaker who'd made some good movies. And until the remake came out, Red Dawn in 1984 was just this kind of odd kind of footnote to like the 80s action films. And it had a lot of Brat Packers who were about, whose careers were about to really go somewhere. It's got C. Thomas Howell, who went on to do a couple of things and had already been with Coppola. You know, Marty McFly's mum from uh, uh, Back to the Future, Jennifer Grey from Dirty Dancing, obviously Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen. It's kind of a little kind of quirky, kind of curious film from the 80s. Why someone would want to remake that now, I don't know. The weird thing about it is that this film was actually meant to come out in 2009, uh, at which point uh, Chris Hanthus was a lot less well-known. You know, Drake and Josh. Well, did it not get made? I'm no. Am I thinking a cabin in the woods? They got made in two thousand and nine. They came out two thousand and twelve. Or did this one also get made in two thousand and nine? Didn't come out two thousand and twelve. I think the cabin in the woods was similar. I'm not sure what happened with cabin in the woods, but in terms of this one, what happened was two things happened. One, MGM went into bankruptcy in two thousand and nine, and the film was delayed from release while the the uh, MGM's status was kind of sorted out, and it took a, a couple of years to do that. The, the remake that they decided to do, so I was like, oh, let's remake Red Dawn. Okay. And they got a bunch of actors who they hoped were going to be the next kind of little bunch of Brat Packers. And they were right that Chris Hemsworth had a big career ahead of him, you know. Um, and some of the other actors have popped up in other things in TV. And I recognised the kid from Drake and Josh as well. Um, but what we also worked out was, you know, the Russians are no longer like communists and, hey, no longer a threat apparently, but they were how wrong they were. Yay! But, although the Russians are actually supposedly in this, it's like an ultranationalist faction of the Russians are part of the invasion, but also the Chinese. The Chinese are invading. And what, what happened was someone said, oh, we can't have the Chinese invading because that'll piss the Chinese off and the Chinese are a big market. 
And it does undermine the kind of renegade spirit of a film like this if they're prepared to make a film saying we're going to shoot these Chinese if they invade and then say we're actually not even going to talk about this in case we upset the Chinese. That doesn't kind of... I mean, if you imagine trying to say that to John Milius and saying, John, can we can we say it's someone other than the Russians invading because we don't want to upset the Russians? John Milius would, to his credit, have told them to go fuck themselves. Either make the film or don't make it, right? Um, and then... Because it's been because of that, they had to reshoot a lot of stuff. They had to kind of cut everything out that said China and put like North Korean banners up and everything else. And and by the time it comes out in 2012, it's like the iron wasn't exactly hot when they were going to bring it out. But three years later, it was like, what the fuck is Thor doing in this? Yeah, do you know yeah, what I mean? That, that's what happened with Cabin in the Woods because that was filmed in like 2009 or something. But there was loads of delays for it coming out, and I think this might have been a similar thing. Yeah, the thing is that that I mean, although I'm not mad keen on the Cabin Woods, I, it did kind of work that a big name actor because a big name actor in a horror film, right, without spoiling the plot. Because no one's safe in a horror film, and that can make it interesting. Well, even Chris Hemsworth isn't safe. Wow, this this could be interesting. But this is just like it it, it, it doesn't work as a camp classic because they're trying to take it all seriously and somber and things. The first one was taken all seriously, but you could just kind of laugh at it and have a joke about it. Whereas this one, you're going like, well, it's not incompetently made. The people involved are all capable of doing what it is they're doing. It's just like it's North Korea, mate. I mean, like, my nan could fucking repel an invasion by North Korea. What the fuck is this? Um, yeah, this this was like Cabin in the Woods. It was shelved for two years because of MGM's troubles. Mm-hmm. And you know what? They should have probably just left it on They the should shelf. have just left it on the shelf. The thing that the, the underlying problem is, is that any invasion of USA by current real-world enemy countries is is a ludicrous idea. I mean, Russia was pushing it, but at least at the time, people had this impression of the Soviet Union as like a world superpower in the 80s. But in 2012, who's going to invade America? No one, mate. It's, it, 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 <laughs> it, the, interesting enough, when you actually watch the film play out and the way that it plays out, it could have worked as a kind of young adult like sci-fi if you'd had a different enemy. If it was set in the future when America had collapsed and people were trying to survive against an invasion then, or it was an alien invasion, the idea of a bunch of kids having to survive on their wits, right? And a couple of them have, you know, there's an army veteran and they used to to hunt when they were kids, so they know a little bit about survival and they fight an enemy. It's not a bad idea for a film, but having North Korea as the enemy is just a fatal flaw. (laughs) (laughs) Funnily enough, John Milius thought that if we're going to do a remake of this film, they should have made Mexico the enemy who were going to invade them, which just goes to show, <laughs> which just goes to show how nuts he is. But this is a curious film. I mean, I have to say, if you want to watch this story and kind of enjoy it but laugh at it, you probably still want to watch the first film. This one's just a little bit too somber. I just, funnily enough, someone will probably take this idea and do a young adult film about it. Um, and to be honest, in 2012, it wouldn't have been a bad time to do a young adult action film about this kind of story. So they probably missed their shot forever. But uh, it's a strange little, why did they even bother to make this kind of film? Yeah.
We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will join us again soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation, which this month compares action films from the 80s versus those from the 2000s and 2010s. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of Double Reel. This podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second reel soon. See you on the other side. In which the adder, oh my fuck. (laughs) You know what? I thought it was going to be Darren Aronofsky that tripped you up.